Second Samuel twelve, fifteen through twenty, and then um, Philippians four. Thank you so much for your giving. I, I, I know we're sowing into a harvest that we're going to see. Lives free is the point. As I mentioned to you several years ago, um, one of the major influences uh, on my understanding of the blessing was a book called The Gift of the Blessing by John Trent and Gary Smalley. And, and uh, so much of how I learned to think through the Bible and through the Scripture and through this whole concept of the blessing came from from my understanding from that book. Inside that book, John Trent, one of the authors, tells a story uh, about his life. Now, I just want to catch you up if you've you've missed a few weeks or maybe this is your first Sunday. We're talking about the blessing, which is the most important relational issue on earth. Um, It's it's the idea of showing unconditional love and acceptance, acceptance to those that God's given you. God's put under your responsibility. Uh, now, in my opinion, last Sunday and this Sunday are the two. You have to have the rest to understand how to get here. But last week and today, we'll finish the series today, is the most important uh, part of the whole thing. If you, if you miss this, then I'm not sure in the end the other part really, really does you any good. I'm not sure it really works. Uh, on August 9th, 1992, John Trent's father began to die. And John and the rest of his family were, were called, called in to attend their father in the hospital in the last few weeks of his life. John said he sat in the parking lot that, that day, and he said just this, um, you've probably had this, just a storm of emotions went through his mind. He said he felt sadness and hopefulness and anger and compassion all sort of jumbled together in a ball of yarn. You, you couldn't really tell which was which. John's father was losing his battle to lung cancer, and uh, that process had been complicated by congestive heart failure. And for the next eight hours, John's family was called in to sit by his side because they were told it wouldn't be long. So the family would rotate and each would take a amount of time to sit by his side and, and uh, pray with him and hold his hand and talk to him. John was filled with so many emotions because his relationship with his dad was a rocky one. Uh, John's mom and dad divorced when he was three months old. And he had never met his dad until he was a teenager. And then when he met his dad, he was, he was trying to figure out how to uh, build that bridge with his dad and his life. And uh, his dad was supposed to come to a football game one time and see him play football. And, and there John was out on the football field and he said, it was the, he said man, I, I played harder that game than I ever played in my life because I just knew my dad was up there in the stands cheering me on. And I always wanted that. He said, but he found out after the game that his dad didn't show up. Uh, he was just distracted by busyness and business and other things, and uh, he didn't show up. That was stacked on top of years of uh, missed birthdays and missed holidays and family get-togethers that were missed. Not to mention, when John had his own kids, his dad couldn't often remember their names. He would just call them by whatever came out of his mouth. And uh, then there was the year before John's dad died when he was waking up from heart surgery and he looked at John and told him he loved him. And then later on, John started to bring that up and talk about how much that meant to him. And he said, he said, I, I didn't say that. And he said, yeah, you did say it. And he said, well, if I said it, it must have been the medicine. I would never say anything like that. What John Trent was desperately seeking is what, what you and I and all of us have a deep need in our soul for. We've called it the blessing. It's to, it's to be blessed. It's the security 
Now listen to this word. It's the security of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and unconditionally accepted. It's the security of that. That was one of the furthest things that John ever got from his dad. And now there he was in the hospital room realizing that his father only had hours to live. I thought it was so fascinating the way John described those moments. He said it was, he said it was sort of like um, as his dad was breathing his last few breaths, he said it was like trying to catch the wind. It was like trying to, trying to, trying to grab something and pull onto it that couldn't really be held. <laughs> it was like moving your hand through smoke. It just, he said, I, 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 he said, I just didn't want him to, I didn't want him to go until he looked at me and one time, just one time said, son, I love you. He said, I didn't want him to go until, until he prayed and asked Christ into his heart. He said, I didn't want him to go until he had the chance to put his hand on the heads of his grandchildren and bless them. But as he took his last few breaths, John drove his head into his dad's shoulder and started to cry. And like that, he was gone. And it was over. And he left this earth with all that unresolved. And, and the wake that that left behind it in John Trent's life, it was all unresolved. This morning, I want to talk to you about how to live without the blessing. Once you realize that the blessing or parts of the blessing will never be given to you, how do you live without it? Some of you have come out of environments uh, where maybe, maybe your parents are passed away now. Uh, maybe there, there's just a dysfunction in your family that's so profound. Uh, either way, you know the blessing's not coming. It's, it, it's probably not coming. So the question is, how do I live when the person God has designed to bless me either can't or won't? What, what do I do? Second Samuel chapter 12 tells a story you're probably familiar with, but I, I want to give you the background in case you're not. And you'll probably look at it differently today than you ever have. King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And uh, to try to hide it, he, he had Bathsheba's wife sent out into a, a bad spot into the battle because he, he knew he would get killed if he did it, so he sent him there to die. And then he was caught by the Nathan prophet, by the, what I say? Sorry. No, no, no. Too many things are running through my mind. I probably shouldn't say them. He sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front of the battle to die. And, and what happened is, um, Nathan the prophet was, re- it was revealed by God to Nathan the prophet, this is what had happened. Nathan went and confronted David. I got that right, didn't I? Okay. Nathan went and confronted David. And, and as that story was coming out, and David was realized that he was caught... David repented, but Nathan the prophet said, God has taken your sin away, but you conceived a child in the middle of this affair, and that child's going to die. I've taken your sin away, but the consequences of your sin have not been taken away. Now, understanding that, look at, look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, 15. 
After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. I want you to see this story as a picture of what to do when something is missing in your life that can't be replaced. I, w- I want you to... King David gives us a path to take when something has been is missing in our life that we can't replace. Now, now think about it with me. Day, now, there's, there's a few differences, I know, and they're probably flashing in your mind right now. It's not exactly the same. The major difference in this story and how we're applying it today is that David caused all this. David had the affair. David sinned. David disobeyed. David took another man's wife. David lied about it. David had that man killed. You know, David caused it. So I know that that's... And that's entirely different than the way we're talking about it today. And I want to make sure this is clear to all of you. When a person is missing the blessing or part of the blessing, it's never the person's fault. And that's entirely different than the story about David. That's the difference. But what I do want to focus on this morning are not the differences in it. I want to focus on the similarities. How, how is this like what we're talking about? When something's been lost or can't be replaced, in King David's case, it's his son. In our case, it may be the blessing. Before we look at, at the pieces, though, I do want to just caution you about one thing that you'll invariably face at some juncture in this whole process in your own life. Guilt. Now, can you imagine for a minute how David must have felt? It was his sin, his lust, his disobedience, his own intentional actions, his own premeditated intentional actions that brought death on that baby's head. Now, can you ima- now how do you live with that? Can you imagine for a minute the guilt that he must have felt? Now, that guilt may be the thing that drove him straight into prayer on it. I don't know. I, I can imagine it would be. But that's oftentimes similar to the guilt that you and I feel, even though it's not our fault. You talk to anyone who is, who's a child of divorce, and almost, almost, if not, maybe everyone, almost everyone who's a child of divorce, at some point thinks it's their fault. At some point they say... If I'd have been a better kid, if, if I'd have obeyed better, if I'd have cleaned my room, if I'd have had better grades, if, if, I, if I didn't have something going on in my life that I had, if I'd have just done something better or different or more, my parents would still be together today. No matter how smart you are, no matter what you think you know, there'll come a day that you feel that. You feel it. And sometimes what you feel overwhelms what you know. Sometimes what you feel overwhelms what you think. 
In John Trent's case, he said after his dad passed away, a flood of emotions went through his mind and he thought, maybe if I would have asked him to invite Jesus in his heart in a clearer way, maybe if I'd have done it clearer, maybe if I'd have spent more time with him, that's what it is. If I'd have just spent more time with him, or if I'd have written him, or emailed him, or maybe gave him a Bible, or tried to explain, or maybe if I'd have sent him an email, or, or, or maybe if I would have been with him more often. What, what John Trent couldn't overcome as a Christian counselor is, after God has used me to bring healing into so many people's lives, why couldn't I bring healing into my dad's life? Why couldn't I do it? If you have anyone that's close to you who doesn't know the Lord, you know the dilemma I'm talking about. You faced it. You said, why then, if God used me so effectively here, why, when you feel so inadequate, you feel so broken, you say, why can't God do this? Why? For many people, it's not that you, it's not that you haven't done enough. It's that you've done more than enough. Now listen to me. If you got a pen, you should write this down. I believe one of the great principles of the kingdom, if we can only understand, will change our will change our inner life. Effort does not equal the response that you want. If I just prayed harder, they'd be saved. If I just prayed longer, if I just witnessed more, if I just if I was a better example. Effort doesn't always equal the response that you want. The world measures value by results. See, we've been born in a worldly system, and whether we know it or not, we've adopted a worldly way of thinking, and it's only under the tutoring of the Holy Spirit and God's Word that we learn to reverse that and think right. But what happens is the bottom, everybody knows the bottom line in business. The bottom line in business is the number. The bottom line in business is the result. The bottom line in business is the printout. The bottom line is the bottom line. And we in the world system measure value by results. God doesn't measure value by results. God measures value by love. He values what He loves. He doesn't value what performs well. He doesn't value results. God's value for you is based on His love for you, not on how good you do for Him. It's a whole different system. And by the way, having the blessing withheld from you has everything to do with those who are supposed to bless you and nothing to do with you. has nothing to do with who you are. Now, having, having said all that... What do you do when the person God designed for you to give the blessing can't or won't? Let me give you a few quick things. Here's the first one that we see in David's life. You're taking notes. Number one, grieve. You have to grieve what's lost. You have to grieve what should have been there and didn't. King David fasted for seven days and spent entire nights lying on the floor, pleading with God to let the child live. Let me tell you what grieving is. Grieving is the time when, when we look inside at ourselves to try to evaluate and, and deal with what's been lost or try to determine how much damage has been done. You know, pain, I've been so fascinated at pain in my own life and pain in other people's lives. Because invariably it always happens. When you deal with pain, your scale's broken. You don't know where, on a 1 to 10 scale, how much does that hurt? I don't know, it just hurts. 
right? Hey, hey, you, lo- you lost your relative. How much does that hurt? Uh, tragedy strikes. How much does that hurt? I, I, I don't, I'm so blinded by, I don't know. It just hurts. What I'm trying to share with you is, you and I are not good objective evaluators of our own pain. We don't know where it is. We don't know where to put it. So what, you, what grieving is, is the God-given process to look inside our own life and try to find out a few things. How much damage was done? How much did not having the blessing here affect me over here? How much did not ever being told I love you affect me here? How much, you see what I'm saying? How much did these things, how much did that tragedy, how, how much, you have to take inventory inside and try to figure out what shape am I in? This is where you feel the loss. Now there comes the day in light of honest reflection where you have to look back over your life and realize that you've missed something. And, and the day that you realize you've missed something is a hard day. When you come to the, the honest conclusion, something's wrong. And I think I figured out where it started. And when you come to the conclusion, it's a tough day. When you come to the conclusion, I missed the blessing, it stabs your heart like an icicle. Because you, you see what was gone, what's, what's not there. Now, I know some of you may be looking at the story thinking, David didn't grieve, he was in intercession begging for that kid's life. Look, you can name it what you want to. It's in those seven days, in the, in the process of those seven days... And in the end of those seven days that David came to the conclusion, this isn't going to change. Grieving is coming to grips with what's not going to change. David got there through intercession. It's not a bad path. Either way, call it what you want, you come to the conclusion that, that there's nothing I can do about this. Legitimate grieving can take a few months, depending on, depending on where the hurt is. It can take a few years. It has to be done, but it also has to be moved through. L- let me give you the second thing that David did. He grieved, and then he worshipped. Now focus with me on this. After the child died, King David did what seems like counterintuitive. Seemed like the opposite of what he should do. When the child died, David washed, changed his clothes, and went and worshipped God. Grieving is a self-centered activity. I didn't say it was wrong. I didn't say it was sinful. I said it was a self-centered activity. It's just that the focus of grieving is you. The focus of grieving is me. That's okay. God wants that for a while. But there comes a time that has to end. There comes a time that your eyes have to find a different destination. There comes a point where you have to move through it now and you have to start looking into Christ's face. You have to move from the shadows of the past to the light of God's goodness. We may say, I, I miss the blessing here. But God is good. Hey, hey, I may be missing some stuff back here, but God, that doesn't change who you are. You're not missing anything. Lord, you're awesome. Lord, you're mighty. Lord, you're majestic. Lord, you're complete. Lord, I lift your name up. I take my eyes off of myself. I take my eyes off what's not there, and I put my eyes on what's there. There has to come a point where your eyes shift. Somewhere, David, the Bible says, he changed his clothes. There has to be a day that you take the grieving clothes off, and you put the worshiping clothes on. 
There has to be a day that you leave, you leave the dark pile of grieving and you move into the temple and you worship. There has to be a day when your eyes lift off the brokenness of this world and they land on the wholeness of God. That He's your all in all. Lifelong victim is not the state of the New Testament Christian. Because God has adopted us into the family of God, which connects us to a God that's greater than everything that we don't have. The only thing greater than a curse is a blessing. Now look at Philippians 4, 19, and I want to show you what I consider to be the single most important piece of this whole thing. I shared with you when we were on staff in Florida, I, I had the joy of being on staff with a guy that was a Christian counselor, and he shared this with me, and, and I'm telling you, and then as I, as I studied through the blessing, I saw it again, and I'm just saying to you, as I've noticed it through the years, I'm going to give you a principle. I, I'm, I'm just telling you one of the most important principles you've ever received in your life. It, it will change your life. It won't change your life if you hear it. And, and, you, and you're going to sit here this morning, I'm going to say it, and you say, sure, I understand that. It won't change your life if you understand it. It'll change your life if you apply it. And what you'll be surprised about is, it's all, what, what I mean by revelation, I don't mean anything spooky. I mean, you, you just have to keep coming into an awareness that it's true over and over and over. You have, to, you have to keep coming back to that revelation. You, it, it, it comes to you at different times of your life. God brings it at different times of your life. And, and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Because what will happen is, is your emotional disposition that has been set by what you were missing will default you back to those old ways of feeling and thinking. And what you have to do, Romans 12, is you have to keep pulling those things back over to, to believe what God has said. Let me show you one of the most important principles. As far as the blessing goes, this is it. As far as the blessing goes, there's nothing more important I can tell you than what I'm going to tell you right now. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. There's a powerful little word in that verse that will set you free. It's all. A-L-L. And my God will meet all your needs according to His riches and glory. Let me tell you what happens. The enemy comes to your mind and he begins to build a case. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. He begins to build a case against you. To, uh, and he does his research, by the way. He does his homework. Better than we do most of the time. And he comes with his little briefcase with paper stuck out of it and file cabinets. And he's built a case against you across your life. And he says, wait a minute. God says He wants you to be this, but, but you, can't, you can't be that because of this and this. And do you remember when you were five? And do you remember when you were 12? And do you remember what happened back there? And do you remember this? What about that time that you failed? And what about what you didn't have? And what about the home you... Look, 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 look. Just come reason with me. God's called the wrong person. Let's just, let's just face it. You don't have the upbringing, you don't have the home life, you don't have the foundation, you don't have the education, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the gifts, you don't have the personality, you don't have the skill. Whatever it is, the enemy will come and begin to lie to you and accuse... He's really accusing God, but he just does it in such a tricky way. We, we take the responsibility on of it. We think it's us. 
And, and what happens is, uh, I remember when I was a young believer, I would sit in church and think, I'd look and say, boy, isn't that family, look at their, their marriage, isn't that incredible? And, and look at that family over there, and, and look what they do, and look at that, boy, don't they, isn't that something? But the enemy would come and say, it is incredible, you're right, it's the most great, greatest thing we've ever seen, but you can't do that. He'll come and say, that can't be you. Your, your family won't be that way, your marriage won't be that way. Your kids won't be there. See where you came from? Remember, see what you're missing? See what's not there? I'm telling you, he'll just come, he'll just come and do that. But here's what you have to do. What, remember what I said? When, when you realize there's something that you can't change, you can't change the past, you can't undo time, you can't undo what was done, you can't undo what you're missing, you can't do any of that. But what God says here is, here's, here's the last principle. Grieve, worship, transfer. Transfer. What was it that you needed that you did not have? Go ahead and admit now that you didn't have it. And then say, but that doesn't change my future. My God shall supply all of my needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. I don't have to have had a good example to be a good example. I don't have to have seen a good marriage to have one. I don't have to have seen a good father or a good mother to be one. I don't have to, I don't have, to have, have come up underneath someone who fulfilled God's call in their life to fulfill God's call for my life. It's not because I'm better. It's not because I'm determined. It's not because of my effort. Because of His love. My God shall meet all of my needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. I don't need that to have happened. What I need is for God to bless me. I don't need, I don't need those things to have been reversed. Here's what the enemy's got us pinned up against. It can't be changed. God's not going to change it. It can't be undone. So the enemy's got us pinned up against, well, since it can't be undone, I can't change. I'm stuck. And we feel trapped and imprisoned and I'm stuck with this addiction. I'm stuck with this life. I'm stuck with this marriage. I'm stuck with this way of communicating. I'm stuck with this temper. I'm stuck with this anger. I'm stuck with this bitterness. I'm stuck with this unforgiveness. No, no, it's a lie. The only weapon the enemy really has is lying. It's all he's really got. He's good though. That's why he's the father of lies. The only thing he can do is talk you into believing something that's not true. And if you do, it'll, it'll mess your life up. The problem is what we received as a child seems more true than what God says. Because it's how our opinions were formed. You've got to form new opinions. You've got to come into a new system. You've got to come into a new way of believing. You've you, you got to come into a new thought pattern. Now, now it's, not, it's not a magic wand. I, 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 hear, I hear people all the time and I've said, I tried that and, and, and it's not working. It helped me for a little while, but now I'm back. Because it's not an event. It is an event. It's a bunch of them. I promise you, in days, in hours, sometimes in minutes, you'll be filled with that, full of that thing, and then that, some emotion will crop up, some event, the enemy will plant some thought, and you, you emotionally default back over there. Oh, well, I mean, you know, that's not, it's not for me. What are you believing? You have to pull that thing back. Romans 12, 1 says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be renewed from within by a new way of thinking. Watch this. Then you'll know what God's will is. You know why you struggle with discernment? Got the wrong pattern. Got the wrong system of thinking. 
Why, why is my spiritual life not clear? Why are my spiritual eyes not clear? Why can I not see? Why can I not win this battle in my mind that the enemy's pushing me in? Because you're, you're functioning on the wrong pattern. You have to have your mind renewed and say, No, no, I don't have to have had that. That's not going into my future. It may be my past, but it's not where I'm going. It may have happened, but it's not the most important thing that happened. The most important thing that happened is that Christ went into the treasure room of heaven and He pulled out of the riches of glory and He poured them out on me. That's the most important thing that happened. Can I tell you what's great? (laughs) You fill your mind up, it, it empties out and you drain back. Fill it up, empties out and drain back. Can I tell you, just keep coming. Let me tell you why. Jesus' riches are glorious. He won't run out. I know you feel like sometimes uh, you met your quota. There's no more. Can I tell you that's not true? And the enemy will tell you that. There's always more. Look, look, let me show you how easy it is. In fact, there's so much that all you have to do is show up. Just keep coming. Just keep coming back with an empty cup. Lord, I just got all these. Okay, Pour off those glorious riches right back in there. What does my God shall supply all my needs mean? He's a father to the fatherless. A husband to the widow. A parent to the orphan. Comfort to the lonely. And a friend to the friendless. You've got to get something clear in your mind. Either he is... Or he isn't. If he isn't, walk away. <laughs> but if he is, eat and drink and feast and take the kingdom in because he's enough. <laughs>